Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Are you well? No. Yeah. Good. Um, so, as Steve said at the start of the service, this is our uh, eighth week now on this series, We Are Church. We're going to do uh, one more next week to finish the series off. But I hope, I hope you've enjoyed it. How have you found the series so far? Good? Bad? Okay. Average? shouldn't really ask for feedback up here, should I? There's very little I can do to come back at you. Um, so on Monday this week, we had our, our welcome evening here at the church, and it was a chance for us to spend some time um, with some of the newer members of our church to share a meal together, to get to know folk a little better. Um, and I think there was, there was just over 60-so people there on that evening, and it was a really um, wonderful time together. We had, a, we had a great evening together. And then after the meal... Uh, Steve and Brenda and me shared a little bit about the church, about its history, um, about the leadership, its vision and values uh, and all of that. And then we opened up the floor for questions. And um, one of the questions that was asked on Monday evening, that's just a photo of uh, people eating. Um, One of the, just to show you what it was like. Um, One of the questions that was asked was this. Um, what does Jesus mean to you as a church? And I thought that was a great question. I thought it was a brilliant question. Um, a really important in question. I think it's a question that actually all of us need to, to answer individually through the course of our lives. What does Jesus mean to us? But the question that was asked was, what does Jesus mean to you as a church? And my hope is that this series that we've been studying together has gone some way to answering that question. There's a song that we often sing in this church, um, and the chorus starts, Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Saviour's love. And the song, it comes from one of the Psalms in the Bible, and it's um, Psalm 118. And if you read through that psalm, you'll see that actually quite a lot of worship songs come from that particular um, psalm. But in verse 22, it says that the stone the builders rejected has now become the corner stone. And so the cornerstone, or as it's sometimes called the foundation stone, it's always the first stone that is laid in the construction of a building. That's the one they put down first. And then all the other stones or bricks or whatever you're making your house out of, whichever little pig you are, um, are, are laid in reference to that stone. And um, <clears throat> so what happens is the entire position of the structure is determined by that first stone. And for us as a church, Jesus is that cornerstone. So our, our position is determined by him and him alone. Now, um, with a building, as long as you build the building well, it should stay where you put it. It should remain standing. Um, but with humans, we have a tendency to, to wander off, don't we? Uh, you know, we know we should be in line with this particular cornerstone, but I think we'll stand over here for a bit, even if it ends up making things a little bit wonky. So we need to be determined as a church to remain in line with our cornerstone, which is Jesus. And this series, I think, has given us the opportunity to explore that a little bit more and make sure that our foundations are right, that we are in the right place, both individually and as a church. And so we've looked at all these 
different areas. We've looked at being Jesus-centered. We've looked at being loving and servant-hearted. Uh, we've looked at how we, we use and view the Bible. We've looked at being inclusive and compassionate. And last week, Steve uh, went through being generous with us. And all of these are characteristics of our cornerstone, Jesus. And so this morning, we want to look at another characteristic of our cornerstone, um, and that is Jesus' dependency on his Father. Jesus was dependent. Now, dependency, I think, is not really a word that we, that we like. It's not a word that we get on well with. I think it has quite a bad rap. You know, our, one of our main aims in life is to become increasingly more independent, right? We, we were taught to be self-reliant, to depend on, on no one. We use phrases like, stand on your own two feet and, and stay strong. And if you're dependent on someone or something, it's generally seen as a bad thing. You know, as a sign of, of kind of weakness or a failing. But for Jesus, his dependency was not so much a sign of weakness and more a source of strength in his life. So if you've got your Bibles with me, um, not with me, with you, I haven't got your Bibles, you've got them. If you've got your Bibles, can you turn to John, Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, uh, and we're in chapter 5 primarily this morning. <clears throat> and I want to read to you from uh, verse 16. I will put it on the screen if, if you haven't got it. John chapter 5, verse 16. Uh, says this. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. So what was Jesus doing? Let me just pause there for a second. So if, you, if you read through the start of the chapter of John 5, um, we see Jesus has healed this guy. It's a guy who's been um, sick for about 38 years, so I would imagine most of his life. And this guy is in a place um, called Bethesda, and in, in this place there's a pool and there's kind of a local uh, legend or folklore that, that, that when um, an a- there's an angel that comes down to the pool and stirs the waters, and whoever gets into the pool first um, gets to be healed. And so this guy hangs out at this pool all day, every day, sitting on his mat, hoping to be healed. And, and Jesus finds him there. And he says to him, Would you, do you want to be healed? And the guy's like, well, I, I can't. Because every time the, the water gets stirred, then there's no one here to help me get into the pool. And, and some guy always beats me to it. And so it, it's not happened. And Jesus says, don't worry about all that. Stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. And we've seen this guy had some sort of paralysis because he, he gets up and he's instantly healed. And it's incredible. Unfortunately, as the guy is walking away, the Jewish leaders, they, they clock him and they say, Oi, fella, you can't be carrying that mat around. It's the Sabbath. You can't do any work on the Sabbath. To which the guy replies, well, I'm only carrying the mat because Jesus has just made me well again. You know, he's healed me. Uh, And then after a bit of investigation, they discover that it was Jesus that had done the healing. And so they become angry at Jesus. So this is Jesus' defense um, of himself in this situation. This is what he says in verse 17. My father is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working. Essentially, I'm doing the work of my father. My God, my father God hasn't stopped working and I'm doing that work here now. Verse 18, for this reason they tried all the more to kill him. Not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he was calling God his own father. 
making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. This is, this is an astounding statement for Jesus to make. The Son can do nothing by himself. You know, at the start of John's Gospel, John paints this picture for us of Je- as Jesus, uh, as God. And he talks about how Jesus was, was present at the start of, of creation, how all things were made through him, about how his life is the light to all of mankind. He talks about how Jesus is the very glory of God. And then here is Jesus saying, I can do nothing by myself. A little bit later on in John's Gospel, in chapter 8, he says it again in a slightly different way. Again, he's talking to, to, to Jewish leaders. And he says, I have much to say in judgment of you. But he who sent me is trustworthy, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. They didn't understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The way he lived his life, the things he did, the places he went, the things he said, all came from his father. Again, later in chapter 10, he he says it a different way. He simply says, the father and I are one. And Jesus wants us to know that he is utterly dependent on his father. And if Jesus' life is characterized by dependence and he's our cornerstone, then we too need to come to a place of dependence on our Father. So how do we do this? Let's um, just jump back to John 5 for a minute. Verse 19. Uh, There's a couple of things I want you to notice about this passage. So he says, Very, very, very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. So the first thing that's kind of really important about this passage is that Jesus refers to himself as the Son and he refers to God as the Father. Now these are very loaded, very specific terms. Terms that the, the, the Jewish leaders found hugely offensive. So much so that they were determined to kill him for it. How can this man claim that God, God, the creator of the universe, is his Father? How can he say these things about himself? And yet Jesus did make that claim repeatedly throughout his time on earth. And what's more is he taught us, his followers, those that believe in Jesus, to do the same. To refer to God as our Father. In Matthew 6 he says, When you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you and pray to your Father in private. Then your Father, who sees everything, will reward you. When you pray, don't babble on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need before you even ask him. So Jesus' dependence, and therefore our dependence on God, should be that of a child's dependence on his Father. And this is actually, this is hard for us, I think, because we're, we're taught to be less dependent on our parents as we, we grow up, don't we? You know, our parents look forward to the day um, that we, we move on and move out. I'm sure Tim is very excited that Nathan will be leaving in uh, just over a month's time. Finally, Tim, it's, it's there. <coughs> You're free. But listen to what Jesus says to his followers in Matthew 18. 
It says, I tell you the truth. Unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. When it comes to our spiritual relationship with our heavenly father, our dependence should reflect that of a small child. You know, small children, they expect their parents to care for them, don't they? They expect them to to feed them and to clothe them and to keep them safe and warm. They expect them to, to care for them when they're sick. And this is how we should be with our Heavenly Father. I was reading this week about a guy called um, George Muller. And some of you may have heard of him. He's not the guy who invented the Muller Corner. That was somebody else. Um, <clears throat> I've got a photo of him here. This is him at about age 90. Look how awesome this guy looks. That's an amazing beard. Um, he's, a, he's a Christian evangelist. And he was the director of an orphanage in Bristol. And throughout the course of his life, he cared for um, just over 10,000 children through this orphanage. Um, and he, oh, he was brilliant. He, he was accused of um, raising the poor above their station in life. What a great accusation to have made against you. Uh, and the workhouses around the, the, the orphanage hated him because the, the children that left went and wanted jobs and careers for themselves and didn't want to go and work in the workhouses because he was so keen on educating them rightly. <clears throat> I just want to read to you an, an account that was given by one of the girls who belonged to the orphanage later in her life because um, I think it's an amazing example of childlike dependence on God. So this is what she writes. The children are dressed and ready for school. But there's no food for them to eat, the house mother of the orphanage informed George Mueller. George asked her to take the 300 children into the dining room and have them sit at the tables. He thanked God for the food and waited. George knew God would provide food for the children as he always did. Within minutes, a baker knocked at the door. Mr. Mueller, he said, last night I could not sleep. Somehow I knew that you would need bread this morning. So I got up and baked three batches for you. I'll bring it in. Soon there was another knock at the door. It was the milkman. His cart had broken down in front of the orphanage. The milk would spoil by the time the wheel was fixed. He asked George if he could use some free milk. George smiled as the milkman brought in ten large cans of milk. It was just enough for the 300 thirsty children. I think it's a great story and it's a great illustration of a childlike dependence on God. George trusted that his heavenly father would provide for those children. The second thing I just want to highlight in verse 19 is Jesus' willingness to submit to the authority of his father. He says the son can do nothing by himself. Now this doesn't mean that Jesus was somehow incapable of acting independently. Far from it. It means that he chose to submit to the will of his father. In all things. And I think probably the best example we have of this is on the night before he was crucified when he prayed this prayer. He said, Abba Father, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me, yet I want your will to be done and not mine. And we're told that Jesus prayed that prayer three times. And it's a, it's a very Jewish way of writing that when you, when you say three times, what it actually infers that this is a constant prayer. This is something that you pray repeatedly over and over again. And Jesus was in a state of constant submission to the will of his Father through his life. 
And although the situation didn't change, we know that Jesus was crucified, Jesus was killed for us. We're told in Luke's Gospel that Jesus was strengthened through that time of dependence on his Father. And this is something that we, we see later on in Paul's life. It's something that Paul stumbled upon years later, the Apostle Paul. I want you to listen to what he writes in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12. He says, If I wanted to boast, I'd be no fool in doing so, because I'd be telling the truth. But I won't do it, because I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life or hear in my message. Even though I've received such wonderful revelations from God. So, to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh. A messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times, there's that three again, and I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weakness, so that my power, so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weakness and in the insults and hardships and persecutions and troubles I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And in this letter, and, and we're gonna, this is the series we're going to do after Easter, this is the next big series for us. So if you want, you can think of this as a, as a teaser or a trailer for the next series. I'm very happy for that, um, just to whet your appetite. But in this letter, Paul is in a position where he's needing to defend himself um, from, from, uh, for the church, from the church in Corinth. They've turned against him and they've sided with other um, leaders and other teachers and church leaders who are seemingly more impressive or more charismatic. Um, super apostles, as Paul sarcastically refers to them in his previous chapter. And although he says that he has received a far greater revelation from God, he's not prepared to boast about it or show off. And the reason, he says, is not because he's somehow morally superior, but because God has given him a thorn in the flesh. Now, reading that, you might think, well, thorn in the flesh isn't that big, is it? Or, you know, come on, Paul, stop being such a wuss. Grow up. Um, but the word that Paul uses here in the, in, the, in the scripture is not necessarily for a thorn. It's something, anything that has a sharp edge. And, and Paul, as a tent maker, um, might very well be describing a, a, a stake. Um, or as he's drawing these parallels between him and Jesus, he might be referring to, to a nail. But what we do know is it's something that causes him um, a great deal of discomfort. Something that was debilitating to him in some way. And so Paul prays. And he asks God to take away the thorn. So he prays three times. And we don't really know what... It was. We don't know. It could have been the persecution. We know he was persecuted. It could have been a, a physical or a mental ailment. It could have um, been a particular sin that he was struggling with to, to get free from. Um, we don't know exactly, but he does pray for God to take it away over and over again, pleading with God to remove it. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He does strengthen him. He says, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. I'm fairly certain that's not the answer that Paul wanted to hear from his prayers. But it was the answer that he needed. Because you see, what God does is he brings Paul to a place of greater dependence. He brings him to a place where he has to depend on God despite the hardship, despite the thing that's causing him to suffer, whatever that may have been. You know, he says, when there is less of you, there's more of me. And that's a good thing. 
And I wonder if sometimes there's a danger that we view Christian maturity as coming to a place where we need to rely on God less. You know, I don't sin anymore. I've got all that side sorted now. I'm a a good Christian. I'm there on church. I I do everything I'm supposed to do. God, you can focus on on some other people now, some more sinful folk, because I've got it all sorted in my own mind and life. I'll be fine. But it's not the case at all. You see, God was most effective in Paul's life when Paul was totally dependent on him. And that's true of our lives as well. Jesus' dependence on God led him to do amazing things. And ultimately led him to bring about salvation for all of us. So we need to learn to be dependent on our Heavenly Father. This is what we see in the Bible. This is what we've discovered from the Word of God. So what does it mean for us as a church? What does this look like for us here at Town with Eden? How can we be more dependent on God? I want to give us three things this morning that we can think about, that maybe we can practice and do, and some of them I think we already do. Um, But just to help us think about whether or not we are being totally dependent on him. So the first thing is that I think we need to make sure that we're putting prayer first. Jesus said, whatever the Father does, the Son also does. He was constantly aware of the Father's heart. He was about what God was doing. He was about what God, um, where God was and what God was saying. And the reason that Jesus knew what God was up to was because he was constantly praying to God. He was constantly spending time with his Father. We see um, in the Gospels that it says that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And that, that might have been, a, we see him in a desert at one point, in a wilderness, we see him up a mountain. Wherever he could get a bit of peace and quiet, he went and prayed. Luke tells us that before he chose the, the 12 disciples, he went up a mountainside and prayed. And his priority in all things was to seek the Father's heart. Now I wonder if sometimes we have a tendency to, to charge ahead to do what we want to do, to make our plans, to make all the decisions, and then just to quickly tag a prayer on the end. Yeah? You know, that sort of, God, please bless this thing that I'm doing right now. Amen. You see, Jesus didn't do his thing and then ask God to bless it afterwards. Jesus made sure the thing that he was doing was God's thing. Does that make sense? I know I said thing a lot then in one sentence, but... The main way we can ensure that we're remaining close to God's heart, I think, is by spending time in prayer. You know, we read it earlier, didn't we? Jesus said, the Father knows exactly what you need before you ask him. It's sort of like, um, uh, like an overweight person, whoever you want to think of, you can use me if you want, um, going to a, a dietitian and saying, look, I've already eaten 12 cheeseburgers on the way over. I just need you to tell me that everything's going to be okay. All right? No, it's not the point. Go and see the dietitian first and then decide if you should eat 12 cheeseburgers. <coughs> you should never eat 12 cheeseburgers. I've tried. Um, <laughs> of course, this doesn't mean that, that, that we spend all of our time in prayer only. I think some of us are more naturally um, contemplative, aren't we? Some of us like to, to sit for, for long periods of time, um, searching the depths of our soul and seeking out God's heart. When we hear the psalmist say, 
be still and know that I'm God. We see that as a, a unique challenge to us to be as still as we possibly can and, 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 and try and um, understand who God is. We like phrases like, let's wait on the Lord and, and let's seek his face. But then there's those of us that are more about doing things. We like to, to, to get out and get on with it. We like to get involved with anything and everything. And the, the thought of a half an hour prayer service scares the life out of us. You know, we like Bible verses like James 2.17. Faith without works is dead. Let's do the work. And 1 Corinthians 10.31. Do everything for the glory of God. Just do it. Go, 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 go. But of course the reality is that prayer and works go hand in hand. Brian McLaren writes that prayer and engagement not only go together, they fuel and sustain one another. And if all we do every day is sit in a room and pray, we'll never see God working through us. We'll never understand what it's like to be used for God's kingdom. However, if we rush headlong into doing works without seeking God first, without reminding ourselves that his strength is made perfect in our weakness, and without coming to a place of childlike submission to our Father, then we're very quickly going to run out of steam because we do it in our own strength. Cory Ten Boom, uh, who is a Christian who helped many Jews escape um, the Nazi Holocaust during the Second World War, she um, asks this question. She says, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tyre? I love that. I think that's a, that's a really good challenge to us this morning, isn't it? Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tyre? Do we only remember to pray after things have gone a little bit wonky? Or do we allow prayer to direct us, to be our guide? So we need to put prayer first. The second thing I think we need to do is that we need to learn to trust God beyond our abilities. Now we are the kind of church that if we see a need, if we feel that God is calling us to do something about it, then we go for it. Even if it seems improbable or even perhaps impossible. And it's the best place that we can be because it means that we are positioning ourselves to trust in God's grace. Paul, God said to Paul, my power works best in your weakness. Right? So we endeavour to never make our weakness or our inadequacies a defining factor in the decisions that we make. There have been many times in my life, and particularly over the past couple of years as I've been working as an assistant pastor, where I have said yes to something, although I strongly suspect that I'm going to be rubbish at it. Not because I want to do a rubbish job, far from it, um, but because it's an opportunity for the kingdom of God. So let me give you an example. Um, one of the roles uh, of, a, of a pastor is to conduct funeral services. It's not perhaps the most joyous of tasks, but it's, it's always a privilege to be asked. And it's a wonderful opportunity to minister to people in a, in a, in a time of need um, in their lives. And last year, as a church, we were asked to conduct a service, someone that doesn't belong to the church. And at the time, Steve was away on holiday, um, which left me. Um, and it was something I'd never done on my own, certainly. It was something I hadn't had particular training in. It was something that I strongly suspected I would be rubbish at. Um, but I knew it was an opportunity for the kingdom of God. And I'll tell you something. My, my prayer life, my dependency on God as I prepared for that service went from like here to like here. You know, I definitely prayed more than three times. 
I pray that God would, would help me speak to the family. I pray that he would give me the courage to pray with them. I pray that I could be a source of comfort for them. I pray that God would give me the words to create a, a fitting response. I pray that God would help me to, to, to be a source of strength for them, that I wouldn't stammer with my words, that I wouldn't collapse as I got up at front, that God would be there next to me. Just every day, all day, because I knew that I needed him to carry me through that. You know, another example... Um, from my life is, is, is standing up here, speaking on a Sunday morning. Whenever I get asked to come and speak on a Sunday morning, you know, my first prayer is always, God, if it's your will, let the sermon pass from me. Um, <laughs> but if not, please give me something to say. Because it, it's hard for me. I struggle to do this. And, and every Sunday, you know, I, I have no idea what the last song we sing is before I get up, because I spend most of that song just praying that God would give me the words, that, that he would cause you lot to forget anything rubbish that I say and only speak to your hearts and, 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 and all the rest of it. But it forces me to a place of dependence on God because I need to trust him beyond my abilities. And that's a good thing. Um, I think you, there's a very famous quote by Eleanor Roosevelt that I'm sure um, many of you will have heard, which says, um, do one thing every day that scares you. Right? You've heard that, yeah? Some of you. Um, I'm not sure about that one, um, so I've changed it slightly. Um, so this is the new quote. Um, do one thing every day that causes you to depend on your Heavenly Father. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's very self-indulgent, wasn't it? Sorry. But step out in faith. Share the gospel with something with someone or something. Practice on something and then share it with someone. Um, put yourself in a position where you need to rely on your Heavenly Father and see what happens. Yeah? Third thing. i get rid of my face. Um, we need to encourage each other. So, I mean, part of the reason we meet in the week in life groups is to encourage one another to build each other up in our faith and to challenge each other on our journey with God. And I think the best uh, way that we can encourage dependence on God with each other is by praying together. Or perhaps more specifically, by praying for each other. We had, um, this week on Tuesday, we had the first of our young adults services here at the church. And it was, it was brilliant. There were, there were over 20 young people, young adults here together. Uh, we had a, a short talk and, and Simon led us in a wonderful time of worship. And then we, we finished with this time of reflection, this time um, with God in prayer. Initially, individually, but as the evening progressed, what I saw happen very naturally is that, that people would go up to each other and they would offer to sit and they would offer to, to pray together. What's going on in your life right now? What can I pray with you about? Let me sit with you and let's depend on God together. And I was so encouraged to see so many people being so willing just to bring their, their problems, their issues, their fears, their failures, their hopes together before God. I think if we're not careful, sometimes we can spend a lot of time speaking and chatting to each other about all the problems and things that are in our life and very little time praying about them together. You know, some friends of mine at the moment are, are going through a really uh, horrendous time with their, their small boy who's, who's in hospital being treated for cancer. And it, it's heartbreaking. But the community around them is strong. 
And they, they have this, this, this WhatsApp group where they, every day we find out what treatment that he's going through at the moment. And, and we get to, to spend time together praying for the, the, what he's going through on that particular day and upholding him together and being dependent on God together. And if our, our aim this morning is to encourage you to be more dependent on God, then I think praying with each other is the best possible response that we can make to that. So let's put prayer first. Let's learn to trust God beyond our own abilities. And let's encourage each other in our dependence on God. I wonder if um, the band would come and join me as we, as we get ready to finish. I'm coming into land. Um, I want us to end with the song, Good, Good Father. And I, I know that um, we sung this last week as well. But I, I think dependence on God is so much easier when we understand God's heart towards us, right? That he is that good, good father that loves us. And after John 5.19, there's, there's another verse that I haven't read yet this morning. And it says this, it says, For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, he will show him even greater works than these and you will be amazed. Because you see, God loves you. And God wants you to depend on him. Because he's that good, good father. Remember Jesus said that God knows what we need before we even ask him. So I think we need to this morning just spend a little bit of time bringing some of our fears and doubts and failures and hopes and whatever it might be before God together. And in a minute I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing this song. And and as we do that, there's going to be a number of guys that are just going to be at the back of the church here by by the sound desk. And if this morning you're you're having a tough time, or maybe you know somebody else that's having a tough time, or, or maybe there's just something that's really heavy on your heart, I want you to go and see those guys, and they're going to pray with you together, and we're going to depend on God together. And maybe if you're not up for that this morning, just as we sing the words of this song, as we sing about getting deeper into our relationship with our loving Father, we can just in our own hearts start to, to, to remember that we are His beloved children, that we can depend on Him in all things.